gospel is a very particular word or kind of speech in the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, the gospel is God's promise of a son who will crush the serpent's head, forgive the sins of his people, raise them from the dead, and give them everlasting life solely on the basis of his grace for the sake of Christ. If you're interested in the, the beginnings of the church, you know, I think looking at the creed is a great way of, of getting into church history and really seeing where the faith kind of came together. In the scripture, the way it presents discernment is actually the skill that you develop where you're able to identify goodness. And what was surprising to me is that is much the way we use the language of discernment outside of the church. The real difference, I would say, like what patriarchy teaches versus what we should believe is that what they believe about the nature of men and women, that there is something fundamentally different about authority and submission between men and women. And that's not just like within particular relationships, but men and women in general. This is their nature. What are the duties required in the Ninth Commandment? The duties required in the Ninth Commandment are the preserving and promoting of truth between man and man. The Gospel never tells us something to do. The Gospel tells us about something that's been done. Hi, welcome to Theology Gals. This is Colleen Sharp. And my co-host is Rachel Miller, and we are really excited this week to have with us Jasmine Holmes. You know, Jasmine, this is one of the things I was thinking about as I was re- as I was preparing for this episode. And even when I was reading your book, you have a little section where you talk about being known as your father's daughter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I thought, I'm not going to go and say this is who she is. She's her father's daughter. Um, right. But I'm sure you deal with that a lot. Like that's what you're known for. But we're having you on because you've written a wonderful book called Mother to Son, Letters to a Black Boy on Identity and Hope. And Rachel and I have both read this book, very much enjoyed the book. We're going to put a link to the book in our episode notes. Um, and I think some people may think maybe this book isn't for me and Mm -hmm. here Rachel and I are, you know, my kids are older and Rachel's are a tad younger than mine and our kids are white. So a little different than um, some of the things that you address, but I would love Mm -hmm. for you to talk about why you wrote this book and maybe add in there who this book is for. Uh, Yeah. I, so it's a long, it's a funny story how I ended up writing the book. Um, I was approached by a publisher just to kind of see if I had any ideas on writing. And um, Colleen, we've had conversations about this before. I thought about writing a book about womanhood um, first. And then I kind of rethought that. And I was like, I'm not ready to jump into that frying pan just yet. Um, But I want to write something that's near to my heart and dear to me. And um, a mentor of mine, Karen Ellis, told me, she was like, why don't you write? Why don't you use your inspiration? My son's name is Wynn. And I was like, what do you mean? She's like, what if you wrote letters to your son about something that's really important to you? And the idea was kind of born from that. 
Um, the reason why I chose to write it in letter form was for my son to read someday, I hope. Um, but honestly, because I really appreciate the epistolatory writing style because I feel like it's kind of a tone check um, for when you're writing about really difficult topics. So the topic of race in the church can be really hard to talk about and to write about. And I think that a mother's relationship with her son is a really disarming doorway into that conversation. And so I wrote it for him, but I also wrote it to the church to kind of like peek in um, and see our relationship, the things that are important to us, the things that um, I hope are extremely gospel focused. And so I wrote it for all different kinds of people to kind of, number one, get a lens into our relationship, but also um, to be challenged by some of the content personally as well. Um, that's, that's really very helpful to hear your story. And, you know, of course you talk about some of that in the book and it was great to read that and get that. I liked the letter format because it was very personal, right? But it also was in a way that I felt like you were addressing me too. Like there were ways that I felt like I was part of the conversation Mm -hmm. uh, and I really appreciated that. Um, and of course, you know, while this book is written to your son, what are some ways that you think that this book could be helpful to others? What would you want the church to learn from this? Um, I would want them to learn a number of things. I think the first thing that comes to my mind is just how to approach this conversation in a way that is productive uh, rather than explosive or accusatory or a way that's making assumptions. Um, I think that it's so easy to forget that we're part of one body. We are a body of believers who are mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. And so the tenderness that I have towards my son, um, while unique to our relationship in a sense, is also the tenderness that we're called to have towards one another in Christ. And so my number one thing that I hope people would take away from the book is just an example of the tenderness that can be had during this conversation and an example of um, just the love that can be had in this conversation. And another thing that I hope that people would take away from it is just to learn about somebody else and learn about somebody else's experience of life and the church and to take that knowledge and apply it to loving others well. Yeah, I was saying before we started recording that I learned a lot about you and that was fun. I felt like I got to know you better. Uh, through this book and I really learned a lot and it was a big encouragement and you know right now probably better than anyone (laughs) that the topic of race is this kind of huge topic and there's all these extreme views and things like that people that want to talk about it people that don't want to talk about it Mm -hmm. Um, at least in the towns that I've been in a lot of times in uh, in reformed churches or Presbyterian churches um, at least in some areas where I've lived, it's like the whole congregation is white mm-hmm. and maybe not even something that some of us think about. Although I attended an OPC where it was, you know, um, about half and half on um, on black and white people in the church. And so that, that was a really um, good time of learning for me from other mm-hmm. people. But mm-hmm. tell me why this discussion of race matters in the church and matters right now. I think all the time of um, the places in scripture that talk about bearing one another's burdens. And that can be such a loaded topic, right? Because some people immediately 
run to the thought of, hey, don't try to control my feelings. Don't try to control how I perceive things. Don't try to be an authority in my life. I think that we live in a really individualistic society where burden bearing kind of gets a bad rap um, from people who are theologically astute. Because I think that sometimes when people hear terms like burden bearing, they think of kind of this forcible, you have to agree with every way that I process a situation or you're racist or you're prejudiced or you're an enemy and not an ally. And so I think that part of the reason why it's so hard to have the conversation is because those immediate like walls go up of like, hey, don't try to control me or hey, don't try to tell me what to think or how to think. Um, I think that the conversation is important because I think that those walls that go up kind of inhibit meaningful relationship and meaningful conversation between people who really should be talking and really should be learning from each other. Um, Not in the sense of one group of people, like I'm a black woman. I'm not at all saying in my book or in these conversations that I am the authority on every single solitary thing that has to do with race and the church. Um, But what I am saying is that I experience life differently from a lot of my white brothers and sisters in Christ. And sometimes those differences really play a part in um, how I perceive certain things and what my experience is in the church. And part of the way that people can love me is to learn about those differences and to learn about the ways that sometimes those differences are hurtful and to grow beyond those hurtful things. So I grew up here in Houston. And one of the things I love about our city is the diversity. My dad as a pastor uh, who retired recently, but in my childhood, my dad was a pastor of a inner city church on the east side of Houston. And the church was a blend of older white congregation and younger uh, Hispanic families and individuals, which reflected the changing demographics of the neighborhood where the church was situated. And the church had in part called my dad because uh, having grown up in South America, he was both bilingual and bicultural. And these wonderful, sweet people who called my dad, who wanted to reach out to the people around them in the neighborhood. Um, They also didn't always welcome the people around them. Um, And regularly, there would be people who come to visit the church. Um, People would find the church, people would come visit. uh, And when a young Hispanic couple would come in, a lot of times they would be told, oh, no, no, see, you want the church down the street. And it really concerned me, and it was very baffling to me that, you know, the reason they had my dad there is they wanted to outreach into the neighborhood, and yet when people came, they acted like they didn't want them there. And, you know, so I wasn't sure what to make of that as a child, and thinking back on it. But I really liked how you addressed the importance of the gospel, but also the implications of the gospel. And I wanted to give, there are two quotes that I wanted to share because I thought they were really helpful. And so one is, uh, you said, our primary goal in this life is not to bring about racial reconciliation in the church. Uh, in fact, our primary goal isn't even to bring about justice here on earth. Our ultimate, the ultimate justice has been dealt to Christ on the cross, accomplishing our reconciling, or sorry, our reconciling in him. But then you also said, this message of reconciliation has to have implications for how believers relate to one another. We are united with bonds that are stronger than the familial bonds of our kinsmen, our priorities are organized not around things in this world, but around another world entirely. And so I wanted to know, could you talk about 
you know, those two things, the importance, but also the implications and why um, we need to understand both in our discussions? Absolutely. Um, I think when it comes to talking about race and racial differences, again, because people can get so uncomfortable and kind of put up those walls, um, one thing that we say to put up those walls is, hey, don't talk about race and don't talk about racism. Just preach the gospel and all that stuff will take care of itself. Um, and it's true in a sense that the answer to every question that we could possibly have in life is the gospel. Um, it is Christ's redeeming and reconciling work on the cross on our behalf. That is the answer. It is the Sunday school answer because it is the true answer. Um, and I say, and instead of however, but, and that gospel has implications for how we live and how we love and how we move forward in our life. Um, when Jesus ascended up to heaven, he told his disciples to teach all that he had commanded them. Um, and those commands exceed beyond just the mere message of the gospel. The gospel is the good news that Christ died for our sins. Amen. Um, and the Bible is full of implications that flow from that good news. And so we're supposed to be teaching the message of the gospel as well as the implications of the gospel, which include implications about justice, um, implications about earthly reconciliation and implications about um, our relationships with one another within the body of Christ. And so I think I understand the um, phrase, just preach the gospel, because I realize we've gotten so far from preaching the gospel in so many areas of the church and of our own lives. Um, however, I think that we should preach the gospel as well as the implications of being people who were bought with a price and being people who are consistently being molded into the image of Christ. Yeah. One thing I thought about, we recently um, talked with Lori Wilbert about her book, Candle with Care. And one of the things mm -hmm. she talks about is how everyone has a story. Mm -hmm. And we, we all have a story and a history, you know, and in, in my family, my my grandmother had to um, escape what's now the Ukraine because she was Jewish and things were not good when Stalin was doing his thing. And, um, you know, and my dad is an Orthodox Jew dealt with stuff uh, in his growing up. And, and that's part of my story. And like Rachel was talking about how she grew up, I grew up in Southern California and I, I was a minority in my school and, um, since I usually often went to the schools that my mom taught at and she, she taught English as a second language. So, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we all have stories and I've almost noticed that, okay, we can talk about all those stories, just not anything that has to do with the race. Right. Um, so how can we calm the chaos and pursue peace in our discussions with other believers when we're talking about race, when we're talking about justice, even, you know, politics? Mm -hmm. uh, I think stepping away from formulaic answers is a huge help to the conversation. I grew up in, um, I always say that I grew up in the 90s. I was born in 1990. So I grew up in the early 2000s, really. But <laughs> um, the worldview tests were all the rage when I was a teenager. It was all of the, you could like go online, you could take a test, you could answer questions about abortion or about politics or about 
just like sin. And it would like give you this grid and tell you like what percentage of your worldview was Christian. And I love those tests because I always scored really well on them and it made me feel really good. And it gave me all of these formulaic ways to look at life. And so I kind of grew up with this thought of like, everybody's on this grid. And if you can just find out what grid people are on, you can give canned answers about anything. I love to read books about different religions because I thought like, hey, if I could just find out like what this person's religion or their background is, then I can have a formulaic answer for everything that they believe, right? Like the Jehovah's Witness can come to my door and I, ha- I know exactly what to say. Or the Mormon can come to my door and I know exactly what to say. Um, quickly, I realized growing up into adulthood that those formulaic answers don't always work because people aren't just formulas. And just because somebody comes from a certain place or just because somebody even comes from a specific religious background doesn't mean that they're going to think like robots and have the exact same worldview implications every single time. Um, I think that we've got gotten beyond that a lot in Christian culture, but I do think when it comes to race and politics um, and other things like gender roles, we are very formulaic in our understanding and we rely more on formulas than on our own discernment. And what I mean by that is I am a black woman. So when I come up to somebody and start talking to them about race, immediately their brain turns into a computer and they're like, okay, she's black. She's got natural hair. She probably is a liberal. She probably thinks A, B, C, or D. And my response is going to be just preach the gospel or race is just a social construct or we're all one race, the human race. I'm not going to engage what she's saying on a deeper level than just figuring out what pat answer I need to apply to whatever she's talking about because I'm all about pat answers and not getting any deeper than that. What I would love for us to do um, is get beyond those pat answers and into a deeper understanding of one another, uh, looking beyond the easy grid of a quick test that we can take and actually analyzing information and being willing to come away and be proved wrong. Um, So I think humility and patience are key in this discussion. Humility to own our ignorance. Uh, Ignorance is not a bad thing. I'm ignorant of a great many things that I would love to learn more about. And um, patience to move through all of the steps of the conversation and think carefully about every implication without moving immediately to those like quick, rapid fire, pat, shut the conversation down answers. It's interesting that you talk about, you know, we turn to that computer that tries to filter and figure out, you know, where to categorize this person or that in our discussions. Um, I once, you know, I was telling Colleen recently back in the day, um, I used to be a, um, (laughs) I was a mommy blogger, (laughs) which um, that blog is thankfully dead and gone. But (laughs) (laughs) I remember writing something one day talking about that, especially in conversations with moms and women. Um, you know, like the scene in Terminator when he comes in and he's sizing everybody up to figure out who has the clothes that he can wear. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's what we do. We go to meet somebody and you go, okay, so you start asking some questions and you can go, I can categorize you, right? Okay, so you're yeah. a um, a natural birth person or you're a, a C-section person or you're a, uh-huh. you know, breastfeed or bottle feed. You know, you, you do all this, but the purpose of doing it is so you can put someone in a category and dismiss them. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. 
And it just, it's that short circuit. Like that's it. That's all the conversation needs. Cause I have now labeled you and you're done. Right. Yep. Yep. And so you talk about that in, in your book about how labels and words are used as weapons. And, mm-hmm. you know, Colleen and I, of course, are very familiar with, with how those weapons are used. Oh yeah. Um, <laughs> that never happens to us, Rachel. I have oh, no, no idea no. We, what we you're talking never, about. <laughs> we have never been labeled anything. Other yeah. than what we are. Yeah. Obviously, yes. <laughs> um, uh, yes. Um, so what are some ways that you've seen that done? And what are some suggestions that you have about what we can do when conversations start to go that way? Uh, I got into a conversation once with a reformed gentleman who, um, I don't even remember what we were talking. I think we were talking about like who was the best president. It was one of those random, like Facebooky, you know, reformed group conversations. Like who is the best president ever? And, you know, everybody was just kind of like, uh, Lincoln or, you know, uh, Washington or, and so they're just kind of going back and forth. And so I got into this fun, like back and forth with a history major. I did not major in history should have, cause that's what I teach, you know, but, um, about these presidents and how they all kind of have their downfalls. And, um, you know, we're, we're just, we're talking, we're having a good conversation. And I said something about Lincoln that was negative. And he was like, well, uh, you know that, you know, without Lincoln, the slaves would have never been free. And he was a Republican. So really like Democrats are the real racists. And I was like, okay, (laughs) cool. Uh, Why did you bring up Democrats? And he was like, well, uh, I just didn't know if you knew that Democrats are the ones who are really taking advantage of the black community. And I was like, why did you bring up the black community? I thought we were just talking about presidents and he was like well the black community is really still stuck on the plantation you know but it's the democratic plantation and I was like how did we get here like what I I am not a democrat I I haven't voted that many times but I've never voted democrat I don't know what you're talking about and he was he kind of like tried to save himself and tried to salvage it but it was just very clear that he saw my profile picture and I said something about Lincoln and he wanted to make sure that I knew that he knew that Democrats are actually public enemy number one because he assumed that I vote Democrat because of the color of my skin. And because I wasn't singing glowing praises for these Republican presidents of the past. And, you know, what was like a really fun conversation quickly devolved into him kind of measuring my political affiliation based on the color of my skin and a few like key comments it happens a lot. It happens all the time. It happens more on social media than it does in real life. I think people are a little bolder on social media than they are in person. But whenever I see the conversation going that way, I kind of just learned to say, oh, like, why, why are you taking it in that, that direction? Or that's interesting. Why did you bring that up? It takes me being really vigilant um, and also kind of reminding the other person that they need to be vigilant against those assumptions that can just kind of creep into our everyday life and our everyday conversation. And I think just, again, that Democrat stuff like Democratic plantation and stuff like, here's my little zinger that I give to people who are Democrats and it always shuts them up. You know, just thinking about 
people in terms of what we can say to shut them up or what we can say to be a quick zinger, I think we have to stop that. I think we have to actually engage in meaningful conversation where we're not constantly looking for the next opportunity to like give somebody a sick burn. I think that's a good point. Um, I know for myself, I have stayed pretty quiet. So certainly online, I uh, stayed quiet in the discussions around race and, and you know, the social justice type discussions that have come up around it. And I use that term just because that's the one that's used, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, partly because my own views are much more complex than I can feel like I can put in 144 characters or mm-hmm. 288 or whatever it is now. Um, and because I don't want to to sound either way, like I'm I'm trying to, you know, you know, score uh, points in virtue signaling here, or you know, show my ignorance there. You know, I, yeah, I want to listen. Yeah. I want to hear, right? Um, but I, I do have to say that there are probably times when my fear of being misunderstood has kept me from trying to say what I wanted to say as well. And that's, you know, I should be willing to have to, to show my ignorance, right. And to say, I'm not sure what's going on here and I would love to learn more. Yeah. Um, but that can be a hard, a hard thing to do. You know, like I want to be, I want to be sensitive. I want to hear, but I also don't know sometimes what the right thing is to say in a situation. For me. And I think I would echo everything Rachel just said, where my views are more complex and with people labeling people, you have these situations where, I mean, at least from my perspective, there's these different extremes. And within those extreme camps, if you disagree with them on anything, you're automatically the other thing. Um, yeah. And you're yeah. automatically labeled that. It's what Rachel and I have dealt with um, with being labeled feminists and egalitarians. Oh, you disagree with complementarianism on that? Oh, then you're automatically a feminist and an egalitarian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, then of course, it's once the next step is to well, then can you really be a Christian? Because we yes. have so limited our tribe, if you will, to um, those who agree with me on everything. And that's, you know, I, I was speaking recently with someone else about how much or how increasingly difficult it is with so much polarization going on in in so many different discussions. Like it's in politics, it's in um, and religion and reform Twitter, you know, there's all of these different areas where people are becoming more and more polarized that there are only these mm-hmm. two opposites and we have to pick a side and one side is clearly the devil and the other side is clearly the angels. And, you know, it's just, it's difficult right, to sit yeah. in the middle of that and go, you know, I'd really like to have a conversation. Can we just talk about some of these things? So I really appreciated what you had to say in those discussions that, you know, if, people who read you uncharitably are going to try to categorize you. Mm-hmm. But yeah. at the same time, if people pay attention to what you're saying, there, there are things in there that you say that should irritate both extremes, right? Because mm-hmm. you're not cleanly fitting into any categories, right? You are yourself and these are your views, you know? Yeah. That's my hope. Definitely. It, it seemed clear. And, and, you know, when I say balanced, it was, you know, you took a reasonable approach. You weren't name calling and throwing things at people. You were just talking through and, it was, it was a pleasure to read that. Well, thank you. Um, I appreciate that. One of the things you talk about towards the end uh, of the book is about forming a new tribe. 
Mm-hmm. And I love this quote, so if you don't mind, I'm going to use it here. Um, Forming a new tribe is not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. But as I look out at the ideological landscape you're inheriting, it seems to be the only way forward. And as you form this tribe, realize that it's not all that new at all, but a return to biblical standards for brotherhood that trumps cultural fragmentation every time. And mm-hmm. I love that. But I would love it, too, if you would expand on that a little bit, what you were getting at with your son and what you would encourage the church and those who are listening. Yeah. Again, um, Karen Ellis talks about being transcendent. And um, her husband, uh, Carl Ellis, and I, he works with my husband at RTS, and we were working on a project together. And it, it involved me just sitting in a room with him and recording him and taking notes for three hours. and it was the most amazing three hours of just hearing this wisdom from this man who has been around the block um, and has really thought deeply about these issues. And he's another person that talks about transcendence and just the, the idea that it's not about belonging in these neat little categories. It is about allegiance to Christ. And I do think that so often across the board, Um, we can silence our conscience on certain issues for the sake of our tribe and our tribal affiliation. And we can be really loud and really dogmatic for the sake of our tribe, even when we're ignorant of a situation or even when we're not quite sure about what we feel about a situation. Um, And what I would love for my sons to do and what I hope that I will be able to do is to confound the tribes because I'm constantly trying to take my thoughts captive and take my thoughts back to the word so that I don't fit neatly into one group or another group. And that's not to say that I'll never be able to be categorized. I, for instance, go to a Presbyterian church. Um, We affirm the Westminster Confession of Faith. That is a category that I fit into. I take very little exception to that. Um, So it's not being opposite just for the sake of being opposite. But when we come against those times where the tribe that we're normally a part of is not following God's word or is not being as charitable as they ought to be, um, being willing to call that out, even if it means that you get your membership revoked, is not a very common thing right now. Absolutely. And Colleen and I, we've shared this before in, in our own discussions and some of it publicly, we find ourselves often looking at, you know, where we're supposed to fit in, in, in certain discussions and realizing we're, we're kind of without a home, right? Mm-hmm. And it, it is it's lonely in the middle. <laughs> it is, you know, until you realize that there are lots of other people out there who also feel lonely in the middle and you start to group, go together and go, hey, you know, I think we have something in common here. Yeah. Um, and I, I just love that I what you're encouraging your son there, it's something that I would encourage my sons to, to be willing to stand for what they believe and, you know, stand for, for the, the scripture, even if it costs them um, belonging or a seat at the table or, you know, the platform that they might want, you know, the things that often are weighed against speaking up. Um, and thank you for encouraging us all to do that. Yeah, and I really appreciated your focus on the gospel and Christ and um, that message. 
that you had in the book. But something I've thought about, and I would love your thoughts on this, is um, it's a little different sort of question. But my my grandmother, in the end of her life, decided to write something up. It wasn't necessarily a letter, but maybe more of a story for each of her daughters. And she talked about her history and things from her childhood, and you know, similar to some of the things you talk about. Um, and then she also talked about them, you know, things when they were little kids and as they grew up and, you know, just a lot of different things. And then mm-hmm. that my mom, who was an English teacher after she retired, she actually teaches a class at the senior center, uh, writing your memoirs, you know, doing this for your family. Yeah. And so several years ago, um, I got really sick and the doctor said, do you understand that you could die? And so I'm like, okay, I guess I understand that. And I, I sat down and wrote letters to my kids, and those were probably more specific um, because of what I was going through. But yeah. as I was reading your book, I thought, you know, I I would like to do this. I, I need to maybe add to those letters that I wrote to my kids. And, of course, not every mom needs to go write a book. I think your yours in book form was necessary and so helpful to the church overall, Um but I'm kind of wondering if this was helpful for you, if you grew through this process, and if it's something that maybe it's not for all moms, but that could be helpful for other moms to do for their children. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, two books that really inspired me as uh, when I was coming up with the idea for my book, um, and that's just how God works. Karen had told me, like, what if you write letters to my sons and your son, and just like, the week before I had finished reading um, a book of letters from uh, Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie to her goddaughter. Uh, And the topic of that book is um, it's called a feminist manifesto, but the title is a little bit tongue in cheek because it's these letters to her goddaughter about what it means to be a woman. And so I I read those. And then I was teaching a civil rights unit at my um, school And we had just finished reading James Baldwin's letter to his nephew uh, called My Dungeon Shook. And again, he's writing about topics of um, race and reconciliation to his nephew. And so I had just like come in contact with those two letters, one after the other. And the exercise of writing the letter to my son, it started uh, with writing it to one son, but then during the process, I had another son. Um, really refined my own thoughts and really like distilled what was most important to me. And it's a small book. It's not long, but it's really packed with the things that mean the most to me. And the exercise of it was just meaningful for me. And I think that it could be meaningful to anybody, not just mothers, um, but also like with Adichie writing to a goddaughter or with Baldwin writing to a nephew. I think just that exercise of distilling the things that are most precious to you and passing it on is such a beautiful thing. I really like reading um, old letters like some of our theologians from hundreds of years ago, not necessarily to their children, but just in general. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you think that, you know, obviously you started this, writing to your oldest do you think you'll write more maybe not for book form but but for them I think so I mean even when my son was um when I was pregnant with my firstborn I had had a miscarriage before him and was just like very very anxious and 
very scared and um, started writing to him just kind of letters. I don't even know where they are now, but just like the exercise of writing to him calmed my heart and made him feel more real to me. And so even if it's not a letter that your child will ever read, I think just the exercise of writing to them and distilling your hopes for them. um, I think it's beautiful. And it's honestly, I mean, we have an example of that in the scriptures, right? In the Proverbs messages to a son that are so precious and so important um, end up being messages that are really precious and important to us as well. Yeah, my my cousin had a, a preemie baby, and after it was born, she started writing letters to him. But she put it someplace so that the family could read them, and then he died. Mm. But those letters were so healing to all of us. Yeah, wow. I can't imagine. So at three months old, but they have oh. two children now, so um, the Lord is good. He is. He's kind. Jasmine, this was so great to talk to you. I really think anybody in the church can benefit from this book, and we recommend it. And, you know, I actually meant to say when I was talking about mothers writing to their sons, I think it goes for fathers, too. Mm-hmm. Um, some fathers may want to do that. Um, and, you know, but I think that there's so much in this book. You said it's a small book, but it is packed with a lot to think about. And I think it, to think about as a parent, to think about as a member of the church, so many different things. So I'm really grateful that you wrote this, that you would share it with us and that you would come and talk with us about it. Thank you guys so much for reading it.